Welcome to the Cello Sherpa Podcast, where we explore all aspects of the climb to the summit from intermediate musician to the professional stage. Check us out online at thecellosherpa.com or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at thecellosherpa. I'm Joel Dallow, your host. I joined the cello section of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra in 1999 and founded the Riverside Chamber Players based in Roswell, Georgia in 2003. Today's episode is sponsored by Clear Resources, your premier resource for compliance, legal, ethics, and risk. For more information, visit them online at clearresources.com. I wanted to thank Ranghil Wesenberg, who is the producer and host of the Musician's Journey podcast, and invited me on last month to talk about my life and experience. So if you're interested in hearing more about my story or a podcast that covers topics that are aligned with this one, then head on over to the Musician's Journey podcast to check it out. Today's guest is Brandon Cho. He is the first prize winner of the prestigious 6th International Paolo Cello Competition and is also a top prize winner of the Queen Elizabeth, Nomberg, and Casado International Cello Competitions. Brandon Cho has appeared as a soloist with many of the top orchestras around the world. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Cello Sherpa podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So you're one of the biggest rising stars on the cello right now. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got here. Well, that's very nice of you. <laughs> Thank you. I actually grew up in a sort of musical household. My parents were not musicians at all, but my brother, who is seven years older than me, started piano and saxophone when he was young. So he was always practicing those instruments as I was growing up. And I also started on the piano at first mm -hmm. when I was around seven. And after a couple of years, I made the switch to a string instrument because my parents wanted me and my brother to be able to play together someday. So I picked the cello mm -hmm. and I wasn't serious about it at first. I mean, of course, who is at, at that age? Yeah. It was just another extracurricular for me. I grew up in a town that was very sports and academic oriented and not really any focus on music at all. So yeah, all the way till I graduated high school, I was really pushing myself in academics and sports as well. So yeah, I'm pretty grateful for a balanced and well-rounded upbringing, even though it was very intense. Yeah. Yeah. As I started doing better and better in competitions, music competitions, I naturally became more and more serious. And my parents and my teacher, at the time, it was Hans Jensen, who I started studying with at age 11. Huh. I'm assuming that had to be remote then, studying with him, because you grew up in New Jersey, right? Yes. Actually, my first teacher, Marnie Collar, who was in New Jersey at the time, suggested to me and to my parents that I applied to Meadowmount when I was 11. Mm -hmm. And of course, I didn't know anything about Hans or, or Meadowmount. <laughs> so I didn't expect to get in, but thankfully he took me at that young age. And he was very serious from the beginning with me and kind of held me to a standard that I couldn't even imagine at that time. Yeah. And so then you went to Meadowmount, but you were still very serious about pursuing academics. And did you play sports also? 
Yeah, so I did a lot of sports starting in elementary school. It was sort of the thing to do in my community and my school system. But I ended up um, focusing on swimming and archery. Okay. More swimming towards the end. But I would say my parents and I pushed those activities just as much as music through middle school and not so much in high school. I mean, by that point, cello was already much further ahead for me. But yeah, I was working really hard on uh, a lot of different things. And what town did you grow up in in New Jersey? I grew up in New Jersey also. <laughs> so that's why I was curious. Oh, really? Yeah, I grew up in Plainfield, <laughs> New Jersey. So what town? Okay. I grew up in Milburn, okay. um, Short Hills, Milburn. It's in Essex County, like right next to Morristown and Livingston and Summit. Oh, yeah. I know that area well. Isn't the Paper Mill Playhouse in Milburn, New Jersey? Yeah. yeah I did a yeah. show there when I was well, a kid, too. So I know that area. Uh, You're definitely in my stomping grounds there. So uh, <laughs> how were well. you doing the uh, lessons with Hans? Were you actually doing them virtually back then? Or were you seeing him some in person? How did you manage that? So in the first few years of me studying with Hans, at that time, my brother was studying at Northwestern anyway. Okay. So he was studying economics and math in his undergrad at Northwestern. And so that kind of gave us an, another reason for me and my mom to fly to Northwestern every other month and stay for about three or four days, mm -hmm. three days packed with lessons and a lot of <laughs> yeah things to work on. And then I would go back home and my mom would videotape all of my lessons. So she would be sitting in there like actively, you know, zooming in and whatnot. And she would convert those into VHS back at home. Mm -hmm. And we would put it on the TV. And I would go through everything, each part, you know, play it and then stop the video, work on it, and then move on once I had worked on that. So my mom was very hands on from the beginning with all my lessons and, and practicing. Did you like that? Or at the time, did you find that to be a lot? <laughs> it was definitely overbearing at times. I think in that early stage, I mean, I enjoyed classical music, but I wasn't really in love with it or, or you know, all in spiritually. <laughs> so it was a bit of a chore <laughs> at times. Yeah. And I think that's something that I'm really grateful for, though, because my mom could have easily just said, okay, I mean, we don't have to push this hard, but she was relentless. And yeah, I am where I am today because of her and my teacher, Hans, and, and my whole family. And what age would you say that that switched to where it wasn't so much about doing something that your parents were helping you with, but that you really caught the bug and the fire was in your belly to start to pursue it yourself? I think in early high school, so like 14 or 15, around there, I started listening to recordings a lot. So my mom, she's not a musician, but she loves classical music and she has loved it since she was young. So she had classical music playing just, you know, in the living room 
a lot of the time. So I was around it, but it wasn't like I was actively seeking out recordings and listening to them from beginning to end. And so I started getting into that in early high school. And that really made me feel strongly about music and not only cello playing, but symphonic works and songs and and piano. It was just something emotional that I couldn't get from any other facet of life. It was something so unique. And so I felt this incredibly strong pull towards this art form. And from then on, it became easier to get myself to practice Mm -hmm. because I wanted to practice and I loved the music that I was playing. Of course, it wasn't easy, you know, the work itself and, you know, getting better. It takes so many years (laughs) to, to get better on the cello and, you know, run into walls and work around those walls and make yourself better through all these challenges. So, but my initial falling in love with music allowed me to go down the path. So when did you enter your first competition? My first competition was actually when I was 11. It was the New Jersey chapter of ASTA, which is, for the listeners who don't know, it's the American String Teachers Association. Uh And they have a chapter in every state and also regional chapters. So I would assume it's still happening now, but every two years they had a competition that would start at the state level and then go to the regional and then to the national level, just like MTNA. Uh-huh. And I happened to win the the state level when I was 11. I was in the early bird division, as they called it, and I advanced to the finals. So there was one early bird, there was one like intermediate, and then one senior like high school level, and somehow I won. And unfortunately, at that time, they didn't have the early bird division in the regional or national chapters. So that's where my journey ended at that time. But yeah, it was a big surprise to me and my parents and my teacher. And it kind of made us hungry for the next one. Yeah. And, And, you know, if I'm here already, like, where, where can I be in just a few years? Wow. And do you remember what you played for that competition? I played the Breval Sonata, or I think it's the Sonata. It's in C major. Yeah, the Breval uh, C major Sonata. That sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was very challenging to me back then because it had all this thumb position and whatnot. I wasn't even thinking about performing. I was just like, oh, okay, my parents are in the audience they'll know if I mess up or not. So let's just get this right. (laughs) And yeah, somehow the the jury liked it too. (laughs) Yeah. So then that, I guess, propelled you forward to start thinking about other competitions. When did you venture into the big named competitions? How old were you then? I think the first time I went to an international competition, I mean, one of the bigger ones was the Kasado competition in Japan mm-hmm. in 2013. I had applied to 
the Tchaikovsky before that, I think it was in 2009 or 2011 or something. Uh-huh. I was way too young. And <laughs> of course, I wasn't invited. But yeah, this Kasero competition in Japan, it happened a few years after they started live streaming a few of these competitions because they didn't used to do that until I think it was the Tchaikovsky in 2011. Uh-huh. And then some of the big ones like ARD, they would be live streamed and you could finally watch all the performances in great detail and kind of get the vibe of these competitions. So I got really into watching those and kind of analyzing how people are playing differently and what kind of repertoire they choose. So I went into the Casado with a lot of anticipation. I was really looking forward to it for a long time. And it was pretty nerve-wracking because that one was also live-streamed. So I knew that people all over the world were watching. And I was just a freshman in college. And yeah, luckily I got to the finals and got the third prize. So that was a big step for me, I think. Nice. Can you talk a little bit about what that preparation was like, how much repertoire you had to prepare, everything I assume had to be memorized, and how long you spent on the repertoire to prepare for that competition. Do you remember those kinds of details? Because I think that would be great for our audience to hear. Yeah. For the Casado competition, it was three rounds. So two recital rounds and then one final concerto round. And the two recital rounds... It wasn't that much repertoire, thinking back on it now. But of course, at that time, to me, it was a ton of stuff to get ready. I'm sure. Yeah, thinking back now, it wasn't even... A lot of it was not even full pieces. It was like movements of things. And I had started working on most of the repertoire probably six months before. Mm Mm-hmm. And that time coincided with Metal Mount, which I attended that summer to just practice all summer and have lessons with Hans all summer. So for seven weeks, I was preparing this repertoire at Metal Mount and performing some of it. And then I went to Northwestern for my freshman orientation and the first couple months were really focused on preparing for this competition. So yeah, I would say a lot of the (laughs) changes and culture shock that I would get from going to college for the first time came more after the competition. So after November of that first year. And yeah, even the last month or so before actually going to the competition was tough because um, even though... Hans and I had been preparing for five months before he kept pushing all the way till the end. And there were some tough moments, but it made me really get better than what I could have imagined at that point. So actually that process also showed me how much you can gain from just the preparation alone. Even if you go and don't get a result that you wanted just putting all your effort and energy into preparing well 
can be the biggest win. Yeah, that's so true. And how much would you say you were practicing every day to get ready for that? Oof. Well, at Metal Mount, there's really nothing else to do except practice. So um, <laughs> I was practicing at, at least five or six hours a day. And then I got to college and was busier with classes and things. So it definitely wasn't as much, probably no more than four hours a day. Okay. But I was able to kind of group my repertoire into equal chunks so that like one week I can play these pieces in studio class, the next week play another group and so on and so forth. So I was able to organize it in a way where I sort of had all the bases covered. That's great. And I'm curious then, people might not know this, but there's a YouTube video of you playing Prokofiev Symphonia Concertant. It's incredible, actually. If anybody hasn't heard it, go check it out. It's got, I think, about 93,000 views now. I've watched it more than once. But one of the things that's kind of amusing to me watching is that in the middle of this, in the second movement, your cello is just drenched in sweat, pouring down from you working so hard. I mean, on one hand, watching you play, you make it look like it's so easy to play the cello. But on the other hand, you can see that physically this is demanding. And I was just wondering logistically, how do you manage with things like that? You know, your fingerboard might get wet and you're trying to play and the highest concentration on, I would say, I mean, I think what well, probably one of the hardest cello concertos <laughs> there is to play. How do you manage logistical things like that along with performance anxiety and nerves if you get nervous because you certainly don't look like that but i'm sure that you have your own nerves and things like most of us do so can you talk a little bit about that yeah so it's very common for me to get very sweaty in performances and i wish that weren't the case but obviously it's just something that's going to happen I don't think it's something that I can control. <laughs> if if there is a way to control it, I haven't found it yet. But <laughs> so just coming to terms with the fact that this is going to happen and I have to make it work in performance, that has kind of eased my anxiety <laughs> about playing with sweat on my fingerboard. Mm -hmm. So because it happens almost every time I perform, I've gotten so used to it now. And when I just practice, sometimes I sweat and I learned to, for the time being, keep it on the fingerboard, you know, if it happens during practice and to deal with it and to not stop and wipe it off and keep going. Because in performance, you're never going to be able to stop in the middle of <laughs> what you're doing. Yeah. So actually, something specific that helps me is like, I'm someone that gains a lot from really feeling the string under my fingers. Okay. So for me, when the strings are really low, then it's really hard to play because then I don't feel any of the tension from the string or, or the interaction of the string pushing back on my finger. Yeah. So when I get into these sweaty situations, I tend to really sink into the string with my left hand. Okay. So instead of 
trying to press or be more accurate, I go a little bit more on the side of the string when I'm in thumb position, trying to navigate the sweat. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm able to anchor myself on the side of the string more than the fingerboard. Oh, okay. So I found that that helps me get around that problem. Yeah, it's just something that kind of evolved over time. I didn't sit down one day and say, okay, this is how I'm going to fix it. But my body found a way to get around it intuitively. And that's what it came out to be. That's great advice to think about because I'm sure you're not the only one who deals with this. Yeah. And how about as far as nerves go? Do you find that you get particularly nervous before a competition or before any type of performance? And if so, how do you manage that? Getting nervous is also something that I've come to accept. Just like the uh, the sweat, it's like I've come to accept the fact that no matter what I do, I'm going to feel at least a little anxious, a little antsy, at least before an important performance. And I spent a lot of time trying to avoid that and trying to think, how do I not get nervous and just be completely relaxed? And I don't think that's the right answer Mm -hmm. because it's, first of all, it's natural to get nervous for us, right? It's survival instinct and we never know what's going to happen on stage. So coming to terms with that fact and being able to channel that nervous energy into focus and being able to be in the moment as strongly as possible that is something that I've, I feel like I figured it out <laughs> um, because I do feel like I'm able to find a way to turn that anxiety into focus. And I do a lot of visualization before, not only visualization, but just imagining the performance. Yeah. So not just, you know, hearing it in my head, but feeling the notes under my fingers and my bow, and sort of if it's a concerto, feeling the orchestra around me, the conductor, or if it's a recital, really feeling, imagining that pianist next to me, and being able to go through a piece straight like this in your head is really hard to do. And the more you work on that, the more solid it becomes in your head, and then suddenly on stage, that's something really reliable to hang on to. Yeah. And so practicing away from the instrument has become just as important for me as practicing on the instrument. That makes sense. Plus, it also saves your body a little bit because we're all limited, I think, in how much we can play every day before the body will stop cooperating as much. Yeah. I'm curious. It doesn't seem like you find anything difficult on the cello when... I watch you play, but I'm sure that you do. And you've talked about the struggle of how hard you had to work. So I don't mean to diminish any of that, but I am curious if you could share what you find most difficult on the cello. Yeah, I I definitely still find everything very difficult, (laughs) Um, especially I think the more you 
learn and develop as a musician and as a cellist, the actually the harder it becomes because what you imagine, you know, the the performance or the interpretation you imagine just becomes higher and higher level. So it's like you're always chasing that <laughs> that thing that you imagine. Yeah. But for me something that I have to take into account a lot is my cello. It's very unique. It's definitely not an easy instrument to play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very old and it has a very unique and colorful sound, but every single note has a different feeling, a different touch, a different ring to it. So it's like when I learn a piece, not only do I have to learn the notes and the piece, but I have to learn it on this cello specifically. And every single note and every single connection has to be shaped and thought through. So my cello really challenges me in that way, but I think it's made me so much of a better musician and the sound I'm able to get on this cello specifically is very special to me. So I can't imagine playing on any other instrument. Yeah, so it's worth the hard work and the challenge because the payoff that you get on the other side of this is this incredibly expressive instrument that allows you to express every nuance that you're working towards. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So what advice would you have for musicians wanting to pursue the same path that you have? I think a lot of people approach pursuing music differently, and it means different things for everyone. But I think at the core of the pursuit, no matter how intense it is, it's like if your love for the music and the instrument that you're playing can be as strong as possible, then that's really what will drive you through tough times. And it's like, if you have this urge from within yourself to go sit down and work on something and to make it better, that's the the healthiest and the most sustainable way to keep working year after year decade after decade. And I think that also keeps your hunger and your imagination sharper. And that sets artistic goals for yourself. Even if you're not competing or, you know, going for a job, if you can set these artistic goals for yourself, that's a really strong way to show yourself that You can take something that's really hard and work on it little by little every day. And after a few months, you look at your progress and you say, wow, I never thought I would get here, but I did. And that's one of the best feelings for me. Yeah, that long-term planning, I think, is the hardest thing. Yeah. But our technology today makes it so much easier now because we can actually record ourselves and go back and listen to ourselves three months earlier just on a phone or whatever, just to get a sense of where we are. I think all of the technology we have really helps us advance 
faster in so many different ways, even outside of music, than we used to be able to. Oh, yeah. And it continues to improve as more technology comes out. Yeah. Where can people find you online and what performances do you have coming up that you're most looking forward to? You can find me on Instagram or YouTube or Facebook. And my website is just my name, brandoncho.com. Okay. And a lot of my upcoming performances are listed on there, as well as previous performances and videos and everything. I will be back in the States for most of the summer, just playing at festivals and, and teaching. And then in August, I'll have another tour with Ansofi Mutter. I'm in her foundation and we get to go on tours with her every year. Nice. So that will be a month-long journey here in Europe. And yeah, in the in the fall and winter, I just have more solo and chamber concerts. I'm active both in Europe and the States, oh. which has been challenging to juggle, but it's been working out well. So I'm happy to call both places my musical home. That's terrific. And it's so wonderful that you agreed to come on and speak to our audience, especially at this point in your career, which is really seems to be this tipping point towards incredible stardom on the cello. And a lot of people are learning who you are. So I'm glad to continue to introduce you to more people. And I'm really appreciative that you came. So thank you so much for joining us today on the Cello Sherpa podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Joel. It was um yeah, your, your podcast is fascinating, and uh, I'm glad to be a part of it. Thank you so much to Brandon Cho for joining us today and sharing his experience with us. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Cello Sherpa podcast. For more information on Brandon and any of the links we spoke about today, check out our show notes by scrolling down on the episode. Be sure and catch our next episode where we interview cellist Afra Harnoy and trumpeter Mike Harriet. We talk about their incredible experience in this business and the very unique recording projects they have been working on over the past few years. We're here to serve you. So if you have questions or topic suggestions you would like to cover in future episodes, please use the contact page on our website, thecellosherpa.com, or tweet them at us at thecellosherpa. You will also find information about the specific services we offer on the website. Don't forget to follow us and rate us on whatever platform you get your podcasts. This helps us climb the rankings so other people can find us. Today's episode was produced, edited, and recorded by me, Joel Dallow. <laughs>